Hello, friends, and welcome to the Coffee and Beer Podcast with your host, Nick Pinizzato, and the co-host, the doctor, Mr. Mike Groman. We are sponsored by Black Rifle Coffee Company. Black Rifle Coffee Company was built on the mission to serve coffee and culture to people who love America. Today on the show, we're going to be talking with Dr. Ellen Candler. She is the postdoctoral associate at the University of Minnesota. She's going to tell us about the Awful Wildlife Watching Project. So we're going to learn more about gut piles than we ever thought we'd ever want to know, which is pretty cool. Uh, and that's a project out of the University of Minnesota Extension. With that, let's say hello to a man that's figuring out what to do with his free time, the doctor, Mr. Mike Groman. Mike, do you really have free time or did you already fill it up with other things? Well, to be honest with you, I personally did not. I filled up some of it, but my wife... She was almost standing there at the door when I rolled back into Pennsylvania with a huge smile on her face and a notebook. So um, there's going to be a lot of a lot of things I'm doing this summer that had nothing to do with, hey, I'd like to do this. I'd like to do that for me personally. Well, at least it was just a notebook. She could have been standing there with a big smile on her face and a moving van out front and all your stuff. So, you know, we'll call that a win. <laughs> exactly. Well, she wouldn't have been standing there. She probably would have been behind a locked door. You know what I mean? Yeah, I gotcha. Well, so hey. that is good, yes. Yeah. The more free time I have, the less I end up having because then I immediately fill it up with something else. And so that I guess the challenge is uh, making a list of long-term things you want to accomplish and try to get those done. I also know... Uh, you had mentioned the other day and we were talking on the phone that you're still, it's not like when school's out that you're not doing anything school related. It never really ends for you, right? You're starting to prep for the next session and just lots of things going on. Oh, for sure. I mean, I've, I still check emails probably every other day and I've uh, had to field a couple emails from students that are out on their clinical rotation and had just had some questions about the content that I taught and how it might apply to a specific patient of theirs. So there's always something going on. Yeah, that's for sure. It never ends. Hey, this is an Ask NDA Anything episode. And uh, we got a we got a good one here, Mike. I want to jump right into it. Uh, so this comes from, this is our first international one, by the way. So this comes to us from our uh, friend in Canada, Jarrett. Jarrett says, first of all, he says, congratulations on your 50th episode. Can't wait for the next 50. Uh, so thank you, Jarrett. Appreciate you listening. I also want to point out that Jarrett is a, we, we emailed a couple times back and forth, which often happens when people submit questions. And so he also let me know that he's a, he's a, going to be a new deer hunter here. He's hoping to get his first deer this okay. fall. So yeah, we are getting uh, all kinds of listeners to the show, which we appreciate. So Jarrett, he, has, he says he has a two-part question. I'm hunting out of a tree stand for the first time this hunting season, and it dawned on me that I may have to relieve myself up in that tree. So this is the first question. Does the scent of human urine affect the deer's behavior, and should I bring a bottle? So that's question number one. And the second question is, uh, do you or do either you or the doctor use any scent lures while deer hunting? So that is a great question. Uh, couple of questions there, Jared, and I think they are good questions for people newer to hunting. And and frankly, people that have been hunting a long time, there, there are all kinds of uh, different feelings about this. Some are uh, sort of what I would call more closer to old wives tales or old hunting camp tales. And then there's the science. And then sometimes there's the science and then there's still how people feel and believe about something. And so they're going to do it that way because that's what they feel or believe. And then there's just downright superstition. And these are all the great things that you have to look forward to as you continue your deer hunting career. So uh, let me take a quick stab at this first. I'll throw it over to the doctor. And so to the first part, does human urine affect, affect deer's behavior? Okay, so there has been uh, some pretty good research on this. And actually, uh, probably the best research has been uh, on a, a a friend of mine and a friend of the organization's, uh, Dr. John Gassett, who works for Wildlife Management Institute, uh, all the way back many, many years ago when he was doing his graduate research, did a study on the uh, impact of, of different scent on deer. And so the short of it is uh, deer are just curious by nature. And so whether it's used car or new car scent, air freshener, or even human urine, 
uh, they are not likely to be spooked by it, okay? Or you're, we're going to talk about attractant sense here. His study also showed um, that it, it, it didn't necessarily have a profound impact on attracting deer either, so deer urine, for example. But I, I want to get into that because it's nuanced, right? So there's there's also this reality between a scientific environment we are conducting an experiment and the the uh, deer hunting environment or the wild environment, which are two very different things. But anyway, uh, so yes, I will say that it's varied for me throughout my hunting career. Definitely there was a time where I felt it was necessary to have a bottle along and uh, not have your human urine in a deer hunting spot. Now I have since certainly relaxed that. I don't think either one is right or wrong. Uh, I think what really impacts deer more than anything else, though, is your human scent, not from urine, but just your scent and your presence from being there. So more likely you're going to impact a deer negatively by walking through your hunting area and urinating them smelling you there versus just the presence of urine there. So um, that's that's my take home on that. Um, and then in terms of do you uh, use scent lures while deer hunting? So. I, I certainly have. I used to actually back in the day have a deer scent company, which still exists to this day. Uh, they're not sponsors of the show, so I'm not mentioning them, but no, <laughs> all, all joking aside, the doctor and I have some inside jokes on that one. Um, but I, in, in doing that, though, I learned an, an awful lot about a deer's reaction to uh, urine. And so, as I said, deer are very curious, and I certainly would have... Um, by the way, I don't know if you heard that. I just, Siri just decided to tell me off my phone that she was relaxed. So I don't know why she picked that up and decided to say <laughs> something, but we appreciate you chiming into the show there, Siri. Uh, anyway, um, deer are curious and they will respond to different scents in the environment. And I think the only time I ever had problems is when my human scent had gotten involved in the situation. So carelessly just putting out whatever type of attractant you want to and leaving your human odor there, I think had the negative impact. I don't use really any kind of attractants so much at this point in my career. Uh, I, I can't say I'm a, I'm, I, I haven't at all or I'm opposed to it. Now, of course, we can get into the whole CWD discussion in some places. If you're in a CWD management zone, which my property is, you can't use urine-based attractants. Uh, but in other areas where you can, I, I haven't still, I'm sure we'll experiment with it on occasion. But what I do use a lot are cover scents. So I'll use uh, fox urine or raccoon urine because those two animals are very uh, prevalent where I hunt. And I like to use that as a cover scent, I think, just to add sort of the natural environment. But again, uh, use what you are comfortable with and what you believe in. I would encourage you to experiment and try different things, but make sure if you're using a urine attractant, that you're not using it in a CWD zone where it may be illegal. So with that, I will throw it over to the doctor for his opinion. So just to tag on to yours and then add some information, Jarrett, um, even though Nick said that you can't use urine-based lures in CWD zones, there are companies out there that make fully synthetic. And so if you is that if that's something you want to get involved in by using scent and you're in a CWD zone or you just don't want to propagate the risk of that you can always use synthetic your uh, synthetic scents and there are some really good companies out there and actually i use them because in new york i can't use anything urine based or naturally based and i've had some really good luck with uh, a specific synthetic company so um with that being said uh in regards to urinating from the stand or in and around my stand i'm kind of a purist that way that i don't do it I, I, and I've never done it my entire career just because of my mentality and my mindset of the fact that I only have so much time to hunt and therefore I only have so many options or chances that I'll get in a year's time. So I'm kind of a, a, a person that I want that deer to go about its day doing deer things and whether the urine does or does not bother them or whether the deer is more curious than another specific individual animal, I'm not going to risk it that way. So I do, I do haul a bottle in, I haul a bottle out, I, you know, dump it, disinfect the bottle, scent spray down the bottle, shake it up, and then, you know, baking soda and, and scentless spray, and then shake it up, let it sit there for a couple hours, rinse it out, and haul it in the next time I go. So that's my process. Um, in regards to scents, as I said before, I do use uh, scents but I don't use them at my stand location that day. I actually am exclusively just running mock scrapes. 
and that is to move deer around the specific properties that I hunt and or if it's on public land to bring them to a specific location and then I strategically set up a stand that I can either shoot to that scrape or shoot to the trail or the downwind side where a buck might cruise through um, and potentially offer me a shot. So um, yes, I use scent, but it's not that I'll use a cover scent as Nick said on my boots or on my stand location. I'll have mock scrapes set up with synthetics. Synthetic lasts a very long time. And once deer start to visit that area, especially it's a mock scrape, they'll start laying down their own scent and they are just continually putting fresh scent in there for me. And that's the way that I use scent. All right. So there you go. You got Jared, you got two different hunters and two slightly different approaches there. And if you had 10 of us here, you would get 10 different approaches. And so I would say experiment, have fun, find your niche and go with it. I didn't know we were going to, didn't think about getting into at least a scent discussion here, but while we're on it, I want to take the opportunity to say a couple things. One, I'm glad Mike brought up synthetics because that's a, that is a great alternative. But if you're going to use urine as well in areas that you can, make sure you're using urine that is part of what is called the Deer Protection Program. And that comes from the Responsible Hunting Scent Association where the urine is tested uh, to be, uh, prior to bottling, again, trying to uh, limit any possibility of introducing CWD, for example, to uh, a new area. So check that out. And I also want to point out to our friends at Wildlife Research Center, who are longtime sponsors and supporters of the NBA, have a number of, um, <clears throat> excuse me, a number of really, uh, a whole line, I guess, if you will, of synthetic scents to check out uh, on their website at wildlife.com. Uh, wildlife so check that out as well. So thanks for the question, Jarrett. You absolutely are getting a hat. I'm happy to send the first hat uh, to Canada. So when you hear this, send me your address and I'll make sure to get that headed your way. And good luck hunting. Glad to have new hunters here and certainly send pictures uh, when you have some success. Yeah, for sure. Keep us posted. This fall. Yes, absolutely. All right. Remember, folks, remember, folks, as I stutter over my words here. Uh, be sure to get your Ask NDA Anything questions in early, get them in often, and we'd like to have uh, two or three of these to read uh, every other show if you could get them to us. So thank you. Send those to nick at deerassociation.com. All right, Mike, with that, let's go ahead and get into the interview and talk with Dr. Ellen Candler. Excited to welcome Dr. Ellen Candler to the Coffee and Deer podcast. Uh, Dr. Candler is a postdoctoral associate at the University of Minnesota. She's also the coordinator of the Awful Wildlife Watching Project at the University of Minnesota Extension. This is a incredibly interesting project uh, that focuses on how awful or you know gut piles for most of you out there uh, impact wildlife food webs. Uh, it involves some citizen science, which is pretty cool. And there's just so many interesting aspects of this. I did not know about this project until uh, the folks reached out to me and said, hey, this is cool. You guys should talk about it on your show. And so I've since gone and, and done some looking at it. And I'm just fascinated by it. And so we are excited to bring this to you. So, uh, Alan, thank you for being on the show. And if you don't mind, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, thanks, Nick. Um... Yeah, I am a postdoc at University of Minnesota, like Nick said. I uh, grew up in Idaho, though. Um, grew up in a family of hunting, um, fishing, hiking, backpacking, rafting, all, all sorts of outdoor stuff, but um, really kind of fell out of hunting um, at an early age. I, I tried deer hunting when I was 12, I think, when it was legal to start, really wanted to do it. Um, Sighted in my rifle, uh, uh, white tail came right up in front of my dad and I, perfect, perfect shot, beautiful shot for a 12 year old. And I just started weeping and told my dad the gun was too heavy. And, um, you know, he of course was like, you sighted it in a, a week ago. It's not <laughs> like you were holding it, it's not heavy. Um, but to his credit, he didn't push it. He really knew like, I, I didn't want to shoot a deer. Um, Fast forward to to college, I went to school uh, at Michigan Tech in the UP of Michigan, uh, and I was uh, at the grocery store buying food for myself, and I called my mom and said, hey, I 
I know how to buy bananas. You know, you, you make sure there's not a lot of soft spots. I know how to buy apples. Um, how do I know if the meat is good to buy? <laughs> and she laughed and said, I mean, if they're selling it, it's probably okay to eat. Um, and it was that kind of wake up call to me that said, you know, I, I really want to get back into hunting. I, I, I feel like I'm like there in my mind now. I'm, I'm, I'm fine with it. And uh, I want to, to eat meat that I know where it came from. Um, and that's what really got me into understanding or wanting to understand more about hunting in ecology. Um, and so that's kind of my, my background in a nutshell. Um, I did my PhD at Minnesota, University of Minnesota, um, focusing on hunter-provided food sources. My dissertation focused on hunter bait, but um, now I'm focusing on gut piles and, and which scavenger species are coming in to, to feed on, on what we leave behind. Well, that's going to qualify Mike as one of the most interesting intros we've had here so far. <laughs> uh, <laughs> our, you know, after 50 episodes, that's a good one. And so, Ellen, I've got a couple questions just based on that. So, first of all, it does sound like then that you are actively hunting again. Is that right? Yes. Yep. I I deer hunting. I, I did an elk hunt out with my dad. Um, didn't didn't get one. I wouldn't say it was an unsuccessful hunt. It was really fun. Um, but yeah, I've shot a couple deer since, and yeah. I enjoy it. Great. And so how does someone from Idaho end up in the upper Midwest for school? So you started up in the UP of Michigan <laughs> and then Minnesota. How did that happen? Yeah, uh, my mom grew up in Michigan. So I um, traveled there a lot as a kid, um, wanted to do something a little different. Uh, so I, I picked Michigan Tech. It's a great, you know, kind of small town, potent, um, a lot of snow. I love winter. So it was, it was, it was a great place to be. I loved it. Um, and then, and, you know, went where, where the, uh, PhD research was came to Minnesota, which has been amazing. Um, so it's a, a wonderful place to be for, for this research. Yeah. We've done a fair amount of work with, the, uh, with the university of Minnesota and there's a lot of great stuff going on there for wildlife and research. And you got some just amazing people there. So that is a good choice. I interrupted you there, doctor. What do you got? Well, it's just like anything else with, um, any type of doctor, PhD, you, you have to come up with your dissertation or your research topic or hypothesis. And so just from me going through the process, I need to know when did that question or when did that hypothesis or how did that hypothesis hit you that, you know, I'm going to invest a lot of my research time and effort into technically gut piles. Yeah, uh, my uh, PhD advisor, now postdoc advisor, did his research, his his PhD research looking at um, kind of the carrion effect um, and how predators kind of distribute um, carrion across the landscape and then how that carrion affects things. So I was kind of already in that that world um, in the effects that that carrion have on, on the environment. Um, but I have always been really interested in kind of the human impact um, because I don't think there's anything in this world untouched by us. And I think that um, my interest in hunting, it, it really was kind of a natural fit. I've, I've wondered and, and talking to hunters through this process, a ton of hunters wonder like, well, what we, we leave this stuff behind in the field. It's super nutritious. All of us know that things are coming to eat it. I, you hear stories all the time of a, a gunshot going and an eagle sitting right there just waiting for you to leave, right? So I wanted to know what what else was coming in, who were, who were feeding, um, who's benefiting from what we leave. All right, I like it. I mean, it's it's one of those things where when when that moment hits you, because it's as a, as a doctoral candidate, one of the biggest things is, oh my gosh, what's my dissertation topic going to be? And it's it's really uh, a calming feeling slash exciting feeling when you finally know that okay it's going to be this because it can be so daunting to find that question and and just for everybody else out there it, the way that it was explained to me by uh, one of my um, professors during my doctoral study was they drew a circle on the board perfect circle and then they erased a very very minute fraction of that circle. And I, when I say a minute fraction, I mean, it was like a centimeter and they made a little chevron, little top of a, you know, two sides of a triangle. And they said, basically, here's what you should be thinking about when you're trying to do your doctoral research is 
this, the circles, all the knowledge in the world, and this little blip, this little bump on the surface of that is going to be what you're going to contribute to additional knowledge and make the circle a little bit bigger. And um, that really impacted me. And I just, I'm always curious to talk to doctoral um, candidates and or um, postdocs that have done this research and, and how they came up with their question because you know everyone thinks oh there's so much knowledge out there but there's always a little bit more a little bit more that you can you can actually dig into yeah i love that visual that's um even even as a, as a doctoral candidate or as a student or something i think um we think we have to know everything <laughs> to be a doctor um, I think getting a doctorate, especially in wildlife, it's, yeah, you contribute, you know, a lot about a tiny, tiny bit. Um, and the real training comes in you learning how to talk and listen and ask further questions and expand on, on what is it, I think. Well, I know a tiny bit about a lot. <laughs> so, uh, as someone that barely made it through high school, y'all are talking over my head here, so... But no, good stuff, yeah, and um, and that's where we learn so many important things that a lot of people don't think about is through this research, and that's why the NDA is always so active and been deeply involved in the Southeast Deer Study Group for so many years because you're on the cutting edge of all the latest uh, research. So, hey, let's talk about the actual project. So tell us, just in general terms, what is the Awful Wildlife Watching Project? Yeah, so the Awful Wildlife Watching Project is a, like you mentioned, a citizen science um, focused project. And we're essentially interested in what is eating your guts. Um, what is, what's coming in to eat what hunters leave behind, um, particularly gut piles. Um, so it started uh, with just a discussion between a few people, um, myself and Amy Rager, who's a uh, Minnesota, University of Minnesota Extension person. Um, she runs the Minnesota Master Naturalist Program and said, hey, our Master Naturalists are super involved and, in, you know, they want to be involved in things. I don't know how many hunters they are. there are, um, but let's reach out to them, see if they're interested in that. And we got some good response. Um, so we reached out to more hunting groups in the state, 4-H, um, just general hunters we knew. <clears throat> and hunters were super interested. Um, so what we asked them to do uh, is, is put a remote camera out on their gut pile right after they filter dress the deer just immediately after because like I said hunters know that there's crows that are just watching them field dress a deer or, or ravens or, or eagles or whatever waiting for them to leave so we want to get the scavengers that are coming in right away we want to get everything um, and then we ask them to leave the camera out for a month which in a lot of places that's more time than a gut pile is going to last um, could last days or, you know, maybe a week. Um, but in some places, especially in Minnesota, if you're hunting late in the season, if snow comes really early, if you're up in the Northwoods, um, snow might bury that gut pile and it's hard to find. And it might last more than a month. We know that sometimes in the spring, they'll thaw out and um, scavengers will come and use them. So there's some things we might be missing on the late end, but um, we think a month is a pretty good time frame. Um, to get that, uh, those, all those scavengers that come in. Uh, and then after a month, they send us the pictures back. We upload those to Zooniverse, which is a citizen science platform. If you're not familiar with it, I encourage anybody to go on and look at it. Edit. There's all sorts of wildlife um, image projects, but there's also like history projects, art projects. It's, it's so many, so many opportunities if you're interested to, to contribute to citizen science. So um, people from all over the world can look at our project and they help us identify the species that are coming in. Yeah, we'll provide links to everything in our show notes so that everybody can find it. And uh, yeah, Zooniverse is pretty cool. I spent some time on there actually looking at your project and some others. So it's uh, one of those things that make sure you have some time because you can really go down a rabbit hole and spend <laughs> some time there, but it's good stuff. And so I want to dig into a lot of this, but um, I was thinking about this as you were describing the program, and so as someone who's had a chance to hunt all around the country and you see different um, traditions or the way people handle gut piles, so I've seen everything from, you know, a place where I hunted in Illinois where the landowner was adamant that you take the gut pile with you and then he would put it in the garbage, uh, but what is more common is people 
will say things, especially in our part of the world in the, in the Eastern US, they'll just say, well, you know, that pile will be gone by morning, which is the case a lot of the times, especially if it's not frozen, like you said. So it sounds like your general advice is, listen, there's no problem leaving that gut pile there because it's gonna get used by a lot of critters. Yeah, I think it'll be used. Of course, it you know follow your your state regulations and and whatever lands you're hunting on. If you're hunting private, you know, ask them what they want you to do. Um, but they'll mostly be used. Um, there's obviously concern uh, in some places. I said follow your state regulations. Um, in southern Minnesota, where that we have uh, chronic wasting disease, we encourage people to actually not participate in this part of the project. Um, don't move a gut pile, right? If we don't want to potentially infect an area that um, we don't know has chronic wasting disease or doesn't have chronic wasting disease, there's always that potential. Um, so I, I think it's, I think it's, they, they get eaten really quick and things are, things are using them. So uh, yeah, I think it's, it's probably pretty safe to leave them out there. So before we get into talking about some of the species and the users of gut piles, let's talk about um, the research just a little bit more. So when you were going through and collecting your data, did you have hunters record if they removed specific organs? I know some people use liver and some people use heart and um, some people actually use the omentum, you know, in regards to some of the the i'm just going to you know use the term like fat web that kind of supports the intestines um so how did that play into your research and potentially your findings hello friends i want to take a moment to talk to you about longtime nda supporters wildlife research center the company is the industry leader in the research and development of advanced hunting scent and human scent elimination products for hunters Wildlife Research Center is famous for their scent killer gold spray, field wipes, and laundry detergent for scent elimination. And they also offer a full line of both natural and synthetic attractants and masking scents. They also care about herd health by participating in the Responsible Hunting Scent Association's Deer Protection Program, which aims to protect deer from the spread of chronic wasting disease. To learn more about Wildlife Research Center and to view their products, visit their website at wildlife.com. Yeah, so we, we do ask hunters if they take what they take. Some also, if they're on, on private land, will, you know, kind of bone out their deer. Um, so there's things that are left or things that are taken that, you know, vary. Uh, I would say most people aren't taking a lot. Um, if anything, the heart. Um, I take the heart when I, when I shoot a deer, if I didn't destroy the heart. Um, but... <laughs> uh, it it does some it is something we ask um, and it is something we'll look at more closely in the, in the data um, to see if that impacts what's coming in. I don't want to get too down into the weeds, but this crossed my mind while you were talking there. So I have uh, just a recent example actually. I was in Ohio and I found a full a, a buck that was just laying there dead, and I I think he just ran himself to death in the rut because I could not find he would look perfectly healthy. He didn't have any signs of any kind of wound or anything and then i went back through that same area like two weeks later and nothing had even scavenged that deer and it just seemed so odd to me but then you would leave a gut pile and immediately it seemed to be gone so i'm just curious of your opinion of that is have you seen anything like that on whole carcasses that they just take longer to get to them is it something to do with the smell of the blood i'm just curious yeah, I would. I've seen that on things like bison, but that reason is more, it's so hard for scavengers to get, open it up. Um, I wouldn't think with a whitetail that would be as huge of an issue. Um, depends on what the predators are in the area. I would assume that the eyes were gone. <laughs> the, I'm guessing the birds picked those out, um, but maybe it's just hard to get in into it. Yeah, yeah, just curious. I just fascinates me as to why things happen or why they don't out there. So that was just one example that I thought of. So in terms of funding, who who pays for this project? How is it funded? 
Yeah, this is actually an awesome funding source, pretty unique to Minnesota. Um, funding is provided by the Minnesota Environment and Natural Resource Trust Fund, which is um, funds that were permanently um, constitutionally established by the citizens of Minnesota. Um, and the goal was to protect um, for protection, conservation, preservation, and enhancement of states, air, water, land, fish, uh, wildlife, and natural resources. Um, and this comes from lottery funds. Uh, and this funds every year, it funds research projects, and you think from wolves to deer to gut piles to um, bluebirds, um, but it also funds restoration projects, um, trail um, uh, projects. It also helped fund the Center for Prion Research here at the University of Minnesota. So um, it's a wonderful source of, of funding for conservation and for research in, in Minnesota. Um, it will be on the ballot again. It's expiring. So it'll be on the ballot in 2024 in Minnesota. So I would encourage anyone in Minnesota to, to educate themselves on, on this fund because it's a wonderful source of, of funding for research and conservation. When that comes around, be sure to let us know. We'll have Torn Miller, our chief policy uh, fellow here. He will um, go ahead and get that up on our action alerts and make sure that people see that and know to support it. So. Um, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, we talked about CWD a second ago, and the thought of lead came to mind. So we know that we want to, and I was going to ask you about CWD, but you brought it up, which was good. And so, yeah, a lot of times state recommendation is to either take away or bury uh, those remaining, those items that you would leave in the woods. But has there been any thought put into lead at all and some of the research on the impact of lead ammunition? I'm not getting into that research particularly here, but I'm just curious if your program has thought about lead. Yeah, our our project is kind of like a, the goals are really basic sounding. So Minnesota has four distinct biomes and large metro area. Um, and so we are looking at the scavenger species that come in to gut piles across the state, across those biomes and how human use and how those biomes might impact that. That is pretty much um, the basic of what we're interested in. And then from there, we can build on more questions. Um, so there are obviously interests in CWD questions. Um, the lead question comes up a lot. Um, we have not ever asked our hunters what they're hunting with um, because it's not a question we're particularly interested in. Um, and it's not really a goal of the project um, to, to look at lead. Um, that being said, there's a lot of research out there looking at lead um, and lead exposure to, to different scavenger species. So I'd encourage anybody to go look at that research. So you mentioned citizen science. This is a, a growing term. I think people are becoming more aware of what that is. And so if someone is sitting there listening to the show and they're thinking, this is really cool, I've put cameras on gut piles before because I wanted to see, you know, the local bear or whatever was in the area. Okay. Take us through the process. How do they get involved and how does it work? Yeah. If, if you're in Minnesota, definitely reach out. Um, we have, if you're in Minnesota, we have cameras that we can lend you. So if you don't have a camera and you're interested, um, we can lend you a camera. We have a lot. Um, we'll send it to you. Uh, we'll, send you a shipping label and everything. Um, if you're not in Minnesota and you're interested, um, we don't right now have cameras available for people outside Minnesota, but I would be interested in talking to anybody interested in participating. Um, we'll provide the email um, to, to get involved in the website to sign up. Um, but as far as citizen science goes or participatory science in this project, um, it's, it's essential um, and that's, there's no way we can answer these questions without the participation of hunters. Um, we could not get out soon enough. The hunters are there right away. They can put the cameras up right away. We could not possibly do that. Um, and the ability to just get, you know, tens of or hundreds, hopefully, of, of cameras every year um, out there to, to collect these, these data um, could not be done without without participatory science. Um, and then the other benefit of it really is um, talking to hunters and and hearing what they see and what they wonder about. So I think as as researchers, like you said, Mike, there's this 
tiny little sliver that we're focusing on, but there's all this other stuff over here. And other people might have ideas that me with my tunnel vision didn't even think about. So including all of these other citizens and, and um, individuals in, in science really expands what we're able to ask, I think. And I think that's, that's my favorite part about including hunters in, in this project. So what are some of your most, to this point, some of your most important findings? And what are you help, uh, hoping to continue to learn as this progresses? Yeah, so we have found um, at least 47 species. Um, there's some, you know, mice species that we haven't identified to species. Um, but definitely a lot of species were, one thing that actually a, a hunter brought up to me that was really interesting um, was that they noticed that there was a barred owl at their, their gut pile and they were um, thinking that uh, a barred owl, instead of feeding on the gut pile itself, was hunting mice that were eating the mm. gut pile. So that was super interesting. And we've seen that on a few cameras now. Um, so that's something we're, we're going to look into a little further. Um, scavengers eating scavengers. So let's talk about some of the unique finds, some of the surprising species that we might not think about. Yeah, some of the interesting things, like I said, owls were um, interesting, particularly because of how owls hunt. Um, they hunt at night, they hunt because they see something move or hear something move. And of course, gut piles aren't doing neither of those things, um, but they're eating them. Um, so are they being attracted to the gut pile because um, for some other reason, or do they hear a mouse on it and, and eat the mouse and then take advantage of the gut pile also? Um, that's been that's been cool to, to um, think about. Uh, we see deer eating gut piles periodically, which oh, wow. is not unheard of. Um, you know, there's always stories of deer being nest predators every now and then, but it's it's always a little alarming <laughs> when you see <laughs> some intestines hanging out of a deer mouth. <laughs> um, yeah. What about other critters? I mean, sorry to jump in there, Mike, but as you said deer, I'm thinking like chipmunks and like what what is one of the strangest things that just completely shocked you? Uh, deer was surprising to me. I guess not, you know, when when we see something surprising where I was like, oh, wow, that nobody must have ever seen that before. And then you go look and yeah, people see that. Um, woodpeckers, um, which when you think about it makes sense because you put a suet block out and you get woodpeckers. It's just, you know, bat. Um, Yep, chipmunks, mice, squirrels, flying squirrels, a lot of flying squirrels, which mm -hmm. has been pretty cool. Yeah. Um, Fisher, Martin, um, of course, wolves, wolves and coyotes and foxes, all sorts of foxes. Any feline species, bobcats? We have had bobcats, yep. And we've had, you know, families of bobcats that kind of hang out at the, the gut piles, which is kind of fun to watch um, on the pictures that the kittens kind of um, tumbling about. I, I look at all of the pictures to see if I ever get a cougar walk by and I have, have yet to see a cougar, but someday. And the only other thing I, I would say is might be a little bit strange is just because I knew a guy, like everyone knows like that guy. I right? know a guy. Well, I, I know a guy <laughs> that he would always have Ziploc bags in his hunting pack. And if he stumbled across someone's gut pile and they left the heart or the liver, if he felt they were in good enough shape, he'd take them. So, I mean, I guess there's some human usage potentially. I don't know if anyone <laughs> ever caught that on camera, but, you know, I knew a guy. <laughs> I have not seen human scavengers yet, but that would be, <laughs> that would be interesting. It is fascinating that you have other animals coming in, not necessarily for the gut pile, but they're predators of the animals using the gut pile. Um, and so that's an interesting one for me. Uh, but how about something just totally bizarre? Did somebody just send you, hey, you know, this isn't really scavenging the gut pile, but I just thought I'd share this with you because it's just bizarre or crazy. Um, some people send like, hey, I, I shot a deer. Um, tracked it and found it and it had already been scavenged um i get those kind of which is not unheard of people that happens um mm -hmm. let's get to it before you find it um there are some pictures that come through that maybe like a deer was injured and is running through and there's like you can tell it was injured which are, is kind of 
um, kind of interesting pictures to see. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of like scavengers that or or things that are totally unheard of. Um, there's definitely a lot people people will send pictures of you know their eagles um, and they could be like eight eagles on a gut pile. Oh wow! Which is just amazing to see um, different ages um, mixed in with the crows and ravens. That's always fun. <laughs> so I guess there's something else that we can talk about very similar to, you know, carrion that is in Africa, there is like a hierarchy of scavengers that eat in or feed in a specific order based on their level toward being the apex predator. Do we see that in North America? Yeah. Um, that is something we're going to look at a little more closely. I would say um, our biggest interest in that is looking at between the biomes. So in Minnesota, there's like the prairie parkland region, which is essentially farmland. Um, and then the Northwoods, the conifer region, which is you know, forest and where the boundary waters are. Um, so our questions are, are related to hierarchy questions, but also like occurrence at, at a gut pile. So who, who finds it first? Um, we would expect in the prairie region where it's open, not a lot of cover that the birds are going to find it pretty quick. They're going to, they're using sight to come um, see the gut pile and they're going to come in and really dominate it. Um, and it might be gone before a coyote finds it. And I've talked to hunters that will say, I'm, I was shocked that I saw my pictures and the coyote wasn't there till three days later. And then there was nothing for it to eat. Um, Whereas in the Northwoods, where it might be in some cover, uh, birds might have a harder time finding it. Um, and they're probably gonna find it. They, they may have heard a gunshot and, and cued into that. Um, but animals like mammals that are using scent to find things might have that opportunity a little more. Uh, and then there's the hierarchy, right? The second piece of that. So um, there's a hierarchy of, of birds, hierarchy of mammals, um, and it's different day and night. So um, there's definitely, we see, you know, crows on the periphery watching the eagles every now and then trying to steal a little piece while the eagles are eating. And you see them, you know, open up their wings and scare the crow away. Um, we don't see a ton. I haven't noticed a lot of mammals um, kind of eating together like you would see at like a, a large like elephant carcass in, in um, Africa where there's a lot of room and different mammal species coming in, but there's definitely um, maybe a, a hierarchy in, in time to uh, occurrence of a different species. So maybe a wolf came in and fed on uh, the gut pile and a coyote is not gonna come in then for a little while later till it knows it's safe from that wolf. Um, so that's another thing that we'll, we'll definitely dive into is um, a time to, time to occurrence or time to event. A lot of data points, a lot of a lot of data point options, I guess I'll say, just sitting here talking superficially, and I'm sure that you've had much deeper and, uh, and, and more specific conversations that would probably make our head spin. We Who have, knew? yeah. We... <laughs> Who knew there were so much to gut piles, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's fun to just dive in and think, oh, I could ask this question and I could let's just talk about the small mammals. Let's think about how they're using it. And we think a gut pile is gone after a couple of weeks. Well, if they're corn fed deer and there might be corn left over, how long is that available to the small mammals? And so that's a whole nother question. Can we use cameras to look at that? Well, maybe not. How do we, so I have to, at that point, kind of rein myself in and say, all right, let's deal with the data we have now. <laughs> maybe we can expand it later. What about domestic animals? You see dogs and cats with collars hanging out at the gut pile? Oh yeah, for sure. I always, yeah, there's definitely, um, definitely dogs. A lot of dogs I've seen, you know, uh, uh, labs, German shepherds. There's a couple that had some shih tzus on it. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> I had to laugh. <laughs> it's like, I wonder what they went home to. <laughs> um, some really long haired cats. Yeah, definitely get domestic animals in there. Interesting. Well, this has been fascinating, Ellen, and I hope that people uh, spend some extra time learn learn more about this. And also, even if you're not in Minnesota, 
my guess is is that ninety percent of the people that listen to this show have their own uh, fine collection of way too many trail cameras, <laughs> myself mm-hmm. among them, and so maybe they could dedicate uh, one of those to this project. And also, I mean, I can even tell you one time I happened to field dress a deer that that had died right in front of one of my cameras, and then literally within twenty four hours, matter of fact, that evening, I got pictures of a, a black bear that came down and, and ate the entire gut pile and so there was really nothing left and so even by accident yeah yeah, it's fascinating and just fun to see uh, what's Mm -hmm. used in that gut pile so where can people find more about the program yeah so we have several different places you can go to look there we have a facebook page awful wildlife watching uh instagram and twitter our handles are awful underscore watch um but if you want to participate you want to email us you want to get information um, I'd suggest visiting our website and I'll, I'll provide that. Um, that's easier to, to provide than to say um, verbally, um, but that will have information on how to participate. If you're in Minnesota, uh, if you're outside Minnesota, please reach out. We'd be interested in, in chatting about participation. Um, it would be my dream to expand this to other states, to other cervid species. So how does an elk gut pile very different from a white-tailed gut pile, aside from it being much larger, um, what kind of species are coming in in places where there's a more established predator population, um, all those all those things. So I'm definitely interested if people are from out outstate of Minnesota. Um, and then if you don't necessarily want to participate as a hunter, but you're interested in learning what we're seeing, I'd encourage you to, to go to the Zooniverse website as well. Um, if you search awful, um, we're the only project that has awful in its name so um you find us yeah that's o-f-f-a-l uh and matter of fact i just when i was first learning about i just simply googled awful wildlife watching and just about everything you described there does come up but we will provide those links and also we should talk about teaming up ellen here because the nda we have such a vast network of deer hunters and particularly the type of deer hunters that are interested beyond just going out and hunting a couple of days. Okay. So uh, there's probably ways that we can help connect hunters to your project and help make your dream come true of making this bigger yeah. than, than Minnesota. So we should do that. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. I love that. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I think our listeners are really going to enjoy the show and uh, Hey, look forward to staying connected with you. Yeah. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Mike, I've always known generally that whenever I field dress a deer in the woods and I leave the gut pile, that usually within 24 hours, it's gone. Okay, I've seen that. I've I've even one time field dressed a deer right in front of one of my trail cameras, sort of unknowingly. And then the next day, less than 20, actually that evening, a bear had came and and, and ate ate the entire gut pile, basically. And so that was a learning experience for me. But man, Dr. Candler really got into... Uh, some nitty-gritty details about all of the benefits that um, that the gut piles provide out there. Well, and I think that it, it, from what you said, that is something that we've always understood. I mean, you've seen it in movies, and there's different phrases of, you know, oh, I'm going to become worm food, you know, when I die, et cetera, and so on. But there is a cycle of life, and these gut piles are a key factor at that time of the year, they're almost like the acorn is to the whitetail in the in the fall of the year. Uh, like gut piles are the acorns in the fall of the year to predators, literally, or scavengers. So um, it's a feast or famine type of thing, and you have to get while the getting's good. And you know, Mother Nature or luck favors the bold and favors you know the opportunity to get in there and get some protein before winter and help you survive. So I, it's definitely something that you would expect a vast host of predators, scavengers, omnivores, however you want to look at it, to utilize as a valuable resource that time of the year. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll make sure we put information in the show notes of where you can go because this is citizen science. It's a chance for you to participate. Mike, it's time for the B-Team Report. pretty sure it's your turn to go first. It is my turn to go first. And I have a doozy because I am a moron. So 
um, tr my, you know, I tried to get some work done with the chainsaw before I left, uh, you know, obviously cutting, splitting firewood for next winter, getting that job done, but also doing some habitat work. I did a ton of habitat work and long story short, ran out of gas. I sent my son to get gas for me, which was again, breaking my routine. This is not my son's fault. This is Mike the moron's fault. So <laughs> he goes and he fills up the gas can for the tractor, fills it up for the chainsaw. And then I have to have high test or high octane for my one um, still FS90. Um, it's like a brush cutter, weed cutter, um, you know, multi-tool type of device, but it needs highest octane gas so i have three things that he went and filled up and he got them all right i'm like very specific I'm like you have to have 90 octane in this or better he's like so i got it and i have it marked right on the cans like right in you know and so he couldn't have messed up so he need, and he didn't but the problem was is i've never sent anyone to fill up my gas cans for me and so when i get back it's one of the first or before i even leave one of the first things i do is i put the oil additive in the specific containers before I go because I know how much gas I need to add. And you can probably know where this is going is <laughs> I did not add the additive before. And because I've had the same cans for decades, I didn't add it after I ran straight gas through my favorite Ooh. saw. And she ran like a clock for a while. And the reason that you have to add the additive is you have to or the purpose of that is it keeps the engine cool and the, it keeps the piston lubricated. The engine doesn't heat up, the metal doesn't swell and it seizes everything up. And so long story short, I'm ripping through um, this ash tree that needed to come down that was dead and bucking it up for firewood. And she's running like a clock. And then all of a sudden she stops dead. Like she ran into a brick wall and it didn't hit me until I went back to actually fill up my second chainsaw and I looked at the color of the gas. I'm like, that doesn't look right. It's clear, you know, literally. And mm. I'm like, and I'm like, oh no. And sure enough, that's what is happening. So my 15 year old Husqvarna that has been broken down and rebuilt twice and still runs like a dream is done because there's no way I'm going to unlock that piston. Wow. Why is it that so many of these B team reports end in like loss of money and <laughs> loss of equipment? Um, man, that's that's too bad, man. That one hurts a little bit. It does. It it does for me. I mean, again, got got my money's worth out of that saw, and then something. I was looking at it anyways. I was gonna I was gonna size up anyways, and this is just gonna make me move in that direction faster. But I would have loved to have kept that saw saw around. It was a workhorse. It did a great job for so fifteen year old saw. I mean, and, and still ran like it. It was still my go to saw, ran like a dream. But now, um, again, I will never do that again. Again, I gotta again. And you and everyone wonders like why I'm I'm so like almost you know, structured and regimented is because when I break protocol, errors happen. And, yeah. we, and I still have a B team report, but it's just how expensive is the B team report going to be for Mike this week is the way that we have to break it down. <laughs> well, mine's actually pretty brief and not expensive, but one that I continue to fail at and seem to make. And that is, so inevitably when you work across multiple time zones, which I do, I have actually the the NDA has staff from California to the East Coast. And so I have many calls and meetings and so on that span these time zones. And also our partners obviously aren't just uh, in the uh, in the Eastern time zone. You know, they they are all over the country as well. And so scheduling meetings sometimes can be a challenge. And so I'm scheduling one for this podcast, which is why I picked this for the B team report. And uh, this show is going to be come up, coming up. It'll be episode 52 uh, on July 5th is with Mark Kenyon. And so, you know, every, just about everyone, I think at this point, anyone listening to this show would know who Mark Kenyon was with uh, Meat Eater and Wired to Hunt. And so it's not always easy to get my schedule and Mark's schedule and your schedule. It's not always easy coordinating schedules. Let's put it that way. And so we have everything set up. We were going to record on Friday. And everything's all set up and I'm sitting there and I'm um, looking at my computer doing something else. And I get this uh, pop-up that says, Mark Kenyon has joined your Zoom meeting. And I look and it's like an hour before I'm thinking the meeting is. And I thought, well, 
Mark's probably just checking to make sure his signal's okay. He's in Idaho right now, you know, who knows? And then pretty soon I'm sitting there and I get an email from Mark. <laughs> hey, are we still doing this podcast today? And I'm like, oh no, it started to hit me. So I message him back. I'm like, yeah, but we're like, we're in an hour, right? So long story short, I jump on the Zoom. There's Mark. And we figure out that uh, I have the time zone wrong. He's in the mountain time zone. We're in the eastern. Actually had the time zone right, but we had the agreed upon time incorrect. And so then I had to get a hold of the doctor and let the doctor know that I messed up and said, hey, but we got a B team report. And so anyway, it's all good because by the time you hear this, we'd have gotten the Mark Kenyon interview in and we will still be uh, having him as a guest on the 5th of July. So that's my B team report. Didn't cost me any money, uh, but it certainly cost uh, time and frustration and a little bit of friendship collateral with the doctor and Mark. So there you have it, folks. There is the B team report, blue collar and white collar versions uh, this time. So we don't leave too many bases uncovered. Hey, Mike, on a positive note, I think we finally had, I don't want to call it a drought buster, but it's been really stinking dry around here, like so dry that ever since I planted uh, that vegetative barrier up at my place, it hasn't rained since. But we had pretty much, I would say for the last uh, six or eight hours, a steady, heavy drizzle. So that's going to be welcome news to farmers and food plot growers everywhere. Yeah, I, I agree. And the, I don't want to use the term drought, but the lack of rain extended up into New York as well. And I was feeling it up there. It was really dry and dusty. But um, this rain is going to cover where we are now in Pennsylvania. And, and I looked at the radar and it's going to get my place in New York as well. So uh, I get the benefit of this very nice rainstorm at two locations, which is good. Yeah, this was a pretty good soaker that's pretty much come all the way across the country. And everyone I, I have talked about time zones and talking to people in different areas, uh, for the most part, Everyone I've talked to was concerned that they've of the lack of rain. So this will help a lot of folks out. And hopefully if you're listening to this and you needed it, you got it as well. Hey, the other thing that occurred to me, Mike, this show, when folks are listening to it, it'll be June 21st. By the next show, it'll be trail camera season for me. I And I talk about maybe pushing this back a little bit, but I typically try to get cameras out in that first, that July 4 type weekend time frame. And by the by, that Mark Kenyon show, July fifth, we'll be there. Yeah, yeah, we will. So, are you, do you? So, you always ask me. I'm going to ask you. Do you have your batteries, and are your trail cameras ready to go? Um, I'm going to say I'm about halfway there. I do need to get purchase batteries. So, you know, you try to save money all year to pay for those thinking things. But uh, and I but I know my cameras are functioning. Um, I ha I just went over them when I bring them, I go over them twice. I go over them when I bring them in for the winter and then I go over them before they go out again. And I also had a few out for turkey season, which were functioning well. And a couple of those have brand new batteries. So some of them are ready to go, but there's still work to do. Uh, but this is my reminder to, to make sure I have that all together. And I imagine you're probably in the same boat. I am. I, I just, I'm a little bit later than you, but what I am going to do is I'm going to cast a net up in New York because I think turkey season for me was a wake-up call in regards to the fact that, yeah, this is not Pennsylvania and you are going to have to be on your game and step it up. And, and again, I have the summer off and I have the time, so I'm going to commit a couple of days every week when I'm up there to do some scouting. And if I'm always going to carry some cameras with me, and if I find a location that I like, I'm going to set a camera to see, is there a deer of any quality that I'd want to hunt in here and um, really try and expand my reach because it's not all about private. I like hunting public and I've had some of my best hunts on public ground and turkey season uh, definitely showed me that this year. And so, um, I am going to cast a few cameras out there this year a lot earlier than I ever have. Yeah, that's a good plan. And we recently posted an article about summer trail cameras. So check that out. Just go to our website and you'll find it easily with a search. And it reminds me too that I've got four or five cameras out on public land that I put out in the winter <laughs> that I still have not gone and picked up yet. So I'm reminded that I need to go get those. And so I'm glad I waited until it was 90 degrees and all kinds of bugs to bite me and snakes and everything else. So... Uh, that's another B-team, bonus B-team report there for you. We were happy to bring you this show as we always are. 
I uh, appreciate you listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. Send us your Ask NDA Anything questions. Also, send us your B-Team stories. It doesn't always have to be about us. If you've got some epic B-Team stories, let us know, and we'll get you a prize and uh, send you that. I'm not sure what that prize is yet. It might be a rock or something like that since it's a B-Team <laughs> story, but it'll be something. We'll have some fun with it. So, We folks, are going to have to make B-Team shirts. I just think that's going to have to be something. I think we're going to have to do that. I agree. So with that, folks, thank you again for listening. National Deer Association, where we are united for deer.